Section five of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one War Part five. We now approach the event which first brought Egypt into contact with the European world. Semiticus, one of the twelve princes, received as his allotment the swampy district which adjoined the sea coast and the mouths of the Nile. His fortune, as we shall see, was made by this position. The commerce of Egypt had hitherto been conducted entirely by means of caravans. From Arabia Felix came a long train of camels laden with the gums of that aromatic land, and with the more precious produce of countries far beyond, with the pearls of the Persian Gulf and the carpets of Babylon, the pepper and ginger of Malaga, the shawls of Kashmir, the cinnamon of Ceylon, the fine muslins of Bengal, the calicoes of Coromandel, the nutmegs and camphor, and cloves of the Indian archipelago, and even silk and musk from the distant Chinese shores. From Syria came other caravans with the balm of Gilead, so precious in medicine, asphalt from the Dead Sea for embalming, cedar from Lebanon, and enormous quantities of wine and olive oil in earthen jars. Meroe contributed the spices of the Somali country, ebony, ivory, ostrich feathers, slaves, and gold in twisted rings. The four latter products were also imported direct from Darfur, and by another route which connected Egypt through Fezzan with Carthage, Morocco, and the regions beyond the desert in the neighbourhood of Timbuktu. In return, the beautiful glasswares of the Egyptians and other artistic manufactures were exported to Hindustan. The linen goods of Memphis were carried into the very heart of Africa as Manchester goods are now. And then, as now, a girdle of beads was the essential part of an African young lady's dress. On the side of the Mediterranean, Egypt was a closed land, and this Chinese policy had not been adopted from superstitious motives. The first ships which sailed that sea were pirates who had kidnapped and plundered the dwellers on the coast. The government had therefore, in self-defence, placed a garrison at Rakotis Harbour, with orders to kill or enslave any stranger who should land. When the Phoenicians, from pirates, had become merchants, they were allowed to trade with Egypt by way of the land and with this they were content. It was left for another people to open up the trade by sea. Ionia was the fairest province of Asiatic Greece. It lay opposite to Athens, its motherland. The same soft blue waters, the same fragrant breezes caressed their shores by turn. It was celebrated by the poets as one of the gardens of the world. There the black soil granted a rich harvest, and the fruit hung heavily on the branches. It was the birthplace of poetry, of history, of philosophy, and of art. It was there that the Homeric poems were composed. It was there that men first cast off the chains of authority and sought in nature the materials of a creed. It was, however, as a seafaring and commercial people that the Ionians first obtained renown. They served on board Phoenician vessels and laboured in the dockyards of Tyre and Sidon until they learned how to build the sea horses for themselves, 
on how to navigate by that small but constant star which the Tyrians had discovered in the constellation of the Little Bear. They took to the sea on their own account, and in Egypt they found a good market. The wine and oil of Palestine, which the Phoenicians imported, were expensive luxuries. The lower classes drank only the fermented sap of the palm tree and barley beer, and had only castor oil, with which they rubbed their bodies, but with which, for obvious reasons, they could not cook their food. The Ionians were able to sell red wine and sweet oil at a much lower price, for, in the first place, they had vineyards and olive groves of their own, and secondly, such bulky wares could be brought by sea more cheaply than by land. The Greeks first appeared on the Egyptian coast as pirates clad in bronze, next as smugglers, welcomed by the people but in opposition to the laws, and lastly as allies and honoured friends. They took advantage of the confusion which followed the departure of Sabaco to push up the Nile with thirty vessels, each of fifty oars, and established factories upon its banks. They negotiated with Samiticus, who ascertained that their country produced not only oil, but men. He ordered a cargo, and transports arrived with troops. Europeans, for the first time, entered the valley of the Nile. Their gallantry and discipline were irresistible, and the empire of the pharaohs was restored. But now commenced a new regime. There succeeded to the throne a series of kings who were not related to the ancient pharaohs, who were not always men of noble birth, who were not even good Egyptians. They were called the Philhellenes, or lovers of the Greeks. Of these, Semiticus was the founder and the first. He moved Egypt towards the sea. He placed his capital near the mouth of the river that the Greek ships might anchor beneath its walls. This new city of Sais, being distant from the quarries, was built of bricks from the black mud of the Nile, but it was adorned with spoils from the forsaken Memphis. Chapels, obelisks, and sphinxes were brought down on rafts. There was also a kind of renaissance under the new kings. For a short time the arts again became alive. Semiticus retained the soldiers who had fought his battles and sent children to the camp to be taught Greek. Hence rose a class who acted as brokers, interpreters, and ciceroni to the travellers who soon crowded into Egypt. The king encouraged such visits and gave safe conducts to those who desired to pass into the interior. All this was a cause of deep offence to the people of the land. They regarded their country as a temple and all strangers as impure. And now they saw men whose swords had been reddened with Egyptian blood swaggering as conquerors through the streets, pointing with derision at the sacred animals, eating things strangled and unclean. The warriors were those who suffered most. As a caste they still survived, but all their power and prestige were gone. In battles the foreigners were assigned the post of honour, the right wing. In times of peace the foreigners were the favourite regiments, the household troops, the guards. While the royals lived merrily at Sais, crowned with garlands of the papyrus, and revelling at banquets to the music of the flute, the native troops were stationed on the hot and dismal frontiers of the desert. Year followed year, and they were not relieved. 
such a state of things was no longer to be borne. One king had robbed them of their lands, and now another had robbed them of their honour. They were no longer soldiers, they were slaves. They determined to leave the country in which they were despised, and to seek a better fortune in the Sudan. In number, two hundred thousand, they gathered themselves together and began their march. They were soon overtaken by envoys from the king, who had no desire to lose an army. The soldiers were entreated to return, and not to desert their fatherland. They cried out, beating their shields and shaking their spears, that they would soon get another fatherland. Then the messengers began to speak of their wives and little ones at home. Would they leave them also, and go wifeless and childless to a savage land? But one of the soldiers explained, with a coarse gesture, that they had means of producing families wherever they might go. This ended the conference. Semiticus pursued them with his Ionians, but could not overtake them. In the wastes of Nubia there may yet be seen a colossal statue, on the right leg of which is an inscription in Greek announcing that it was there they gave up the chase. The Egyptian soldiers arrived at Meroe in safety. The king presented them with a province which had rebelled. They drove out the men, married the women, and did much to civilise the native tribes. In the meantime, Semiticus and his successors opened wider and wider the gloomy portals of the land. The town of Naukratis was set apart, like Canton, for the foreign trade. Nine independent Greek cities had their separate establishments within that town, and their magistrates and consuls, who administered their respective laws. The merchants met in Hellenion, which was half-temple, half-exchange, to transact their business and offer sacrifices to the gods. Naukratis was, in all respects, a European town. There the garlic-chewing sailors, when they came on shore, could enjoy a holiday in the true Greek style. They could stroll in the marketplace, where the money-changers sat before their tables, and the wine-merchants ran about with sample flasks under their arms, and where garlands of flowers, strange-looking fish, and heaps of purple dates were set out for sale. They could resort to the barber's shops and gather the gossip of the day, or to taverns where quail-fighting was always going on. Nor were the chief ornaments of seaport society wanting to grace the scene. No Egyptian girl, as Herodotus discovered, would kiss a Greek, but certain benevolent and enterprising men had imported a number of heterae, or lady friends, the most famous of whom was Rhodopis, the rosy-faced, with whom Sappho's brother fell in love, and whom the poetess lampooned. The foreign policy of Egypt was now completely changed. A long period of seclusion had followed the conquests of the new empire, but the battle-pieces of the ancient time still glowed upon the temple walls. With their vivid colours and animated scenes, they seemed to incite the modern pharaohs to heroic deeds. The throne was surrounded by warlike and restless men. It was determined that Egypt should become a naval power. For this, timber was indispensable, and the forests of Lebanon must be seized. War was carried to the continent. Syria was reduced. A garrison was planted on the banks of the Euphrates. A navy was erected in the Mediterranean Sea, and the Tyrians were defeated in a great sea battle. 
the Suez Canal was opened for the first time, and an exploring expedition circumnavigated Africa. Yet, for all that, the Egyptian people were not content. The victories won by mercenary troops excited little patriotic pride, and the least reverse occasioned the most gloomy forebodings, the most serious discontent. The Egyptians, indeed, had good cause to be alarmed. The Philhellenes were playing at a dangerous game. Times had changed since Sesostris overran Asia. A great power had arisen on the banks of the Tigris, a greater power still on the banks of the Euphrates. They had narrowly escaped Sennacherib when Nineveh was in its glory, and now Babylon had arisen and Nebuchadnezzar had drawn the sword. For a long time Chaldea and Egypt fought over Syria, their battleground and their prey. At last came the decisive day of Carchemish. The Phoenicians, the Syrians and the Jews obtained new masters. The Egyptians were driven out of Asia. Yet even then the kings were not cured of their taste for war. An expedition was sent against Cyrene, a Greek kingdom on the northern coast of Africa. It was unsuccessful, and the sullen disaffection which had so long smouldered burst forth into flame. The king was killed, and Amasis, a man of the people, was placed upon the throne. This monarch did not go to war, and he contrived to favour the Greeks without offending the prejudices of his fellow countrymen. He was, however, a true Philhellene. He encircled himself with a bodyguard of Greeks. He married a princess of Cyrene. He gave a handsome subscription to the fund for rebuilding the temple at Delphi. He extended the commerce of Egypt and improved its manufactures. The liberal policy in trade which he pursued had the most satisfactory results. Never had Egypt been so rich as she was then. But she was defenceless. She had lost her arms. It is probable that under Amasis she was a vassal of Babylon, paying tribute every year. And now a time was coming when the gold could no longer purchase repose, when a horrified people would see their temples stripped, their idols dashed to pieces, their sacred animals murdered, their priests scourged, and the embalmed body of their king snatched from its last resting place and flung upon the flames. A vast wilderness extends from the centre of Africa to the jungles of Bengal. It consists of rugged mountain and of sandy wastes. It is traversed by three river basins or valley plains. In its centre is the basin of the Tigris and Euphrates. On its east is the basin of the Indus. On its west is the basin of the Nile. Each of these river systems is enclosed by deserts. The whole region may be pictured to the mind as a broad yellow field with three green streaks running north and south. Egypt, Babylonia and India proper, or the Punjab, are the primeval countries of the ancient world. In these three desert-bound, river-watered valleys we find, in the earliest dawn of history, civilization growing wild. Each, in a similar manner, had been fostered and tortured by nature into progress. In each existed a people skilled in the management of land, acquainted with manufactures, and possessing some knowledge of practical science and of art. The civilization of India was the youngest of the three, yet Egypt and Chaldea were commercially its vassals and dependents. India offered for sale, 
articles not elsewhere to be found, the shining warts of the oyster, glass-like stones dug up out of the bowels of the earth, or gathered in the beds of dried-up brooks, linen which was plucked as a blossom from a tree, and manufactured into cloth as white as snow, transparent fabrics, webs of woven wind, which, when laid upon the dewy grass, melted from the eyes. Above all, those glistening, glossy threads stolen from the body of a caterpillar, beautiful as the wings of the moth into which that caterpillar is afterwards transformed. Neither the Indians, the Chaldeans, nor the Egyptians were in the habit of travelling beyond the confines of their own valleys. They resembled islanders, and they had no ships. But the intermediate seas were navigated by the wandering shepherd tribes, who sometimes pastured their flocks by the waters of the Indus, sometimes by the waters of the Nile. It was by their means that the trade passed between the riverlands was carried on. They possessed the camels and other beasts of burden requisite for the transport of goods. Their numbers and their warlike habits, their intimate acquaintance with the watering places and seasons of the desert, enabled them to carry the goods in safety through a dangerous land, while the regular profits they derived from the trade, and the oaths by which they were bound, induced them to act fairly to those by whom they were employed. At a later period, the Chinese, who were once a great naval people, and who claimed the discovery of the New World, doubled Cape Cormoran in their huge junks, and sailed up the western coasts of India into the Persian Gulf, and along the coast of Arabia to the mouth of the Red Sea. It was probably from them that the arts of shipbuilding and navigation were acquired by the Arabs of Yemen and the Indians of Gazarat, who then made it their business to supply Babylon and Egypt and eastern Africa with India goods. At a later period still, these India goods were carried by the Phoenicians to the coasts of Europe, and acorn-eating savages were awakened to industry and ambition. India, as a land of desire, has contributed much to the development of man. On the routes of the India caravan, as on the banks of navigable rivers, arose great and wealthy cities, which perished when the route was changed. Open the book of universal history at what period we may. It is always the India trade which is the cause of internal industry and foreign negotiation. The intercourse between the Indians, Chaldeans and Egyptians was often interrupted by wars, which recurred like epidemics, and which, like epidemics, closely resembled one another. The roving tribes of the sandy deserts, the pastoral mountains, or the elevated steppe plateau, pressed by some mysterious impulse, a famine, an enemy in their rear, or the ambition of a single man, swept down upon the plains of the Tigris and Euphrates, and thence spread their conquests right and left. Sometimes they merely encamped, and the natives recovered their independence. But more frequently they adopted the manners of the conquered people, and flung themselves into luxury with the same ardour which they had displayed in war. This luxury was not based on refinement, but on sensuality, and it soon made them indolent and weak. Sooner or later they suffered the fate which their fathers had inflicted, and a new race of invaders poured over the empire, to be supplanted in their turn when their time was come. Invasions of this nature were, on the whole, beneficial to the human race. 
the mingling of a young, powerful people with the wise but somewhat weary nations of the plains produced an excellent effect. And since the conquerors adopted the luxury of the conquered, they were obliged to adopt the same measure for supplying the foreign goods, for luxury means always something from abroad. As soon as the first shock was over, the trade routes were again opened, and perhaps extended, by the brand new energies of the barbarian kings. Babylonia, or Chaldea, the alluvial country which occupies the lower course of the Euphrates, was undoubtedly the original abode of civilization in Western Asia. But it was on the banks of the Tigris that the first great empire arose, the first at least of which we know. For who can tell how many cities, undreamt of by historians, lie buried beneath the Assyrian plains? And Nineveh itself may have been built from some dead metropolis, as Babylon bricks were used in the building of Baghdad. Recorded history is a thing of yesterday, the narrative of modern man. There is, however, a science of history. By this we are enabled to restore, in faint outline, the unwritten past, and by this we are assured that whatever the names and number of the forgotten empires may have been, they merely repeated one another. In describing the empire of Nineveh, we described them all. The Assyrian Empire covered a great deal of ground. The Kingdom of Troy was one of its fiefs. Its rule was sometimes extended to the islands of the Grecian Sea. Babylon was its subject. It stretched far away into Asia. But the conquered provinces were loosely governed, or rather no attempt was made to govern them at all. Phoenicia was allowed to remain a federation of republics. Israel, Judah and Damascus were allowed to continue their angry bickerings and petty wars. The relations between the conquered rulers and their subjects were left untouched. Their laws, their manners and their religion were in no way changed. It was merely required that the vassal kings, or senates, should acknowledge the emperor of Nineveh as their suzerain or lord, that they should send him a certain tribute every year, and that they should furnish a certain contingent of troops when he went to war. As long as a vigorous and dreaded king sat upon the throne, this simple machinery worked well enough. Every year the tributes, with certain forms of homage, and with complimentary presents of curiosities and artisans, were brought to the metropolis. But whenever an imperial calamity of any kind occurred, an unsuccessful foreign war, the death or even sickness of the reigning prince, the tributes were withheld. Then the emperor set to work to subdue the provinces again. But this time the conquered were treated not as enemies only, but as traitors. The vassal king and his advisers were tortured to death, the cities were razed to the ground, and the rebels were transplanted by thousands to another land, an effectual method of destroying their patriotism or religion of the soil. The Syrian expeditions of Sennacherib were provoked by the contumacy of Judah and of Israel. The kingdom of Israel was blotted out, but a camp plague broke up the Assyrian army before Jerusalem, and not long afterwards the empire crumbled away. All the vassal nations became free, and for a short time Nineveh stood alone, naked but unattacked. Then there was war in every direction, and when it was over, the city was a heap of charred ruins, and three great kingdoms took its place. 
End of section five.